Welcome to Islam for Christians, everyone. This is episode 133, Biblical Figures in Islam, part 25, New Testament, Jesus, part 4, The Cross. The Cross, the crucifixion of Jesus. This event, as it's presented by the disciples and the church throughout the years, it's not something for the faint of heart, or really the faint of mind, or the faint of soul, because it viscerally challenges all facets of a person in such an extreme and such a unique way. The cross is just impossible, at least for me, to explain to children particularly if you're in a church with a giant crucifix in the middle. How do you explain that to a five-year-old? And honestly, most adult Christians don't really grasp it either. I used to be one of these people for a long time, okay? And it took me a seminary education and 30 years on earth before it actually really, truly clicked. And yet, even now, I don't fully understand it. Just contemplating the cross, it has a renewing effect every time I do it, and it still jars you long after you have come to realize what it really, really means. By most measures, I'm a somewhat dedicated Christian. I'm in church every Sunday. I believe our catechism and everything that comes with it, and I volunteer to teach that to children on Sundays as well. But even now, despite this inundation in the faith, I still don't like aspects of this. I don't like Good Friday, for example. Not to say I don't believe it or that I'm not appreciative of it, but there's just a part of me that just wants to look away when this subject is brought up. You know, I don't want to contemplate the stations of the cross either. I never watched The Passion of the Christ. Now, I should probably. I just, I haven't. It's, it's too horrible. That man up there is God and the person you revere most. And in many ways, this person is, if I'm very lucky, someone I would call a friend. Now, who wants to see that happening to him? It's one of the great challenges of being a Christian. But this is something, as a Christian, you are supposed to see it and contemplate it. You know, that big, bloody crucifix is a jarring reminder of Yes, the love of God, but also the wages of sin and your personal complicity in what happened and why it had to happen. You're supposed to feel angry at the people doing this to Jesus and then eventually start to understand your role in the process of it. That in a way, you are one of those people you're so angry at. It, it's heavy stuff. The challenge of the cross, 
or the scandal of the cross, to borrow a term from one of my late great teachers, this specific scandal, this shocked the soul. It was behind so many of the greatest heresies of the early church, understandably so, from uh, docetism to Arianism, many others. That might also be docetism. It's one of those words you only ever see written. I've never actually heard someone say it, <laughs> but docetism, docetism, Arianism. The point is they downplayed the divinity of Jesus or the humanity of Jesus, one or the other, and all in hopes to cope with this radical idea of a crucified God, of a God lowering himself to the level of humanity. And in the most bloody, torturous, humiliating way, it really is the wildest paradox in the history of the world. A crucified God suffering torture, humiliation, and death at the hands of his own creation and doing it for his own creation. It's such a challenge that it took the disciples. Now, these were people who were with Jesus every day and knew his greatness up close. But even then, it took them a little while to figure out what happened. What was this? What is going on? Even Peter, the rock upon whom the church was built, he didn't understand this right away. And judging from the gospel, he wasn't really supposed to understand it, at least not until the appointed time. And there's a very good reason for that. This paradox, this crucified God, it challenges the mind and spirit like nothing else before it. And how does it challenge the rational mind? I mean, forget about it. In the rational mind, this is filed under instant rejection as a natural sort of mental reflex, almost like a gagging reflex. It's, it's similar to tasting something extremely bitter. Like for example, you remember the first time you tasted a beer and it did not taste like cream soda like you hoped it would? What did your face look like? <laughs> but then, after a while, the taste gets a little better. And eventually you grow up to appreciate the art of brewing a bit more. You know, you don't like beer, substitute wine. I'm more of a beer guy. But either way, it takes time. So, like this process with tasting beer, the reaction to the cross can take a similar path. Not to trivialize this, it's an analogy. All analogies are imperfect, but you'll see what I'm getting at here. When you think of the cross, what do you do with that first bitter taste? Do you just spit it on the floor and say, nevermore? Or do you keep going and open yourself up to a wider world? That initial reflexive gag to the notion of the cross, that's what makes it such a great window to the spiritual world. Paradoxes do that. And this is the ultimate greatest paradox. And when you ponder this for long enough and well enough, your mind and spirit can travel to some mind-bending 
and spirit-bending places. Thus, the apostles and the early martyrs and the saints and the church that followed. And if you look at it long enough, some of the scandal wears off a bit. And you even start to see some precedent for this kind of loving humility from God in the past that previously you may have been blind to. For example, when God was so angry, he let the Babylonians destroy Israel and take them into exile. He let the nasty Babylon pagans desecrate, destroy the temple that David's son had built for him. And yet, he went into exile with his people. He went to Babylon with them. Now, this would come around once again in the cross, but you will never make it that far. You will never see that unless you can hold in the bitterness of the cross for long enough. This idea of God making something good out of what does appear on the surface to be a complete disaster. It is the paradox of the cross that drives the Christian faith, and it has from the beginning. This is how Paul explained it, 1 Corinthians 22-25. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who were the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So that's how the Christians see the cross. That's how someone sees the cross who has sort of imbibed it and held on to it for a while and, and turned it into what the Christians have turned it into. But there are different views. For example, how do the Muslims see this? Now, somewhat fittingly, the Muslim view of this is kind of similar to someone who tasted beer, spit it out, decried the very concept of beer, and vowed to never, ever drink again. Muslims generally see the paradox and just stop there. Because such a contradiction such a scandal, it seems to be beneath a majestic, all-powerful creator God. Jesus, God on the cross? On what planet does that look like God is winning? And God has to win. So, rather than holding on to this scandal and contemplating it and working within the framework of this as an accepted truth, it is simply dismissed outright as scandalous and ridiculous. Now, this is slightly different than what Judaism does, because unlike Judaism, Jesus is still considered to be a holy man born of a virgin, a virgin, virgin, the anointed one of Israel. So in Islam, unlike Judaism, you end up with a whole lot more to wrestle with here. Again, because they can't just dismiss it wholly. 
you know, W-H-O-L-L-Y, because Jesus is in the Quran as a holy man. Again, so it can't be outright dismissal. So there's some explaining to do. Why did this happen? This was a holy man, not just some random guy killed by the Romans, and not just any holy man, the Messiah, the holiest man in history. If you are rejecting the Christian version, the scandal of the cross, and yet you still have Jesus as this great holy man, how do you square that? Now, on this subject, as with any subject in this realm, you may have guessed by now that when talking about the Islamic Jesus, this notion is not a simple thing, a clear thing, a, a codified, doctrinal, dogmatic thing. It's not even really a doctrine. It's more like a series of hints that can lead to varying conclusions. And we will go over some of those conclusions. But the majority conclusion throughout time is that Jesus was not actually crucified. I mean, literally not crucified in the physical sense. It didn't really happen. And this is more of a logical inference than anything, because really, how could he be? Is that how God takes care of his prophets? Is that really what a victory looks like? How can those arrogant and sinful men, from the temple authorities to Pontius Pilate to the ignorant horde who wanted Jesus dead, how could God really let them do that to his messenger? It's a very understandable position. So understandable, actually, that even Christians have reacted that way in the past. There was an early heresy called docetism that I mentioned earlier, or docetism. I'm just going to say docetism. Now, this sect believed something similar, that Jesus did not really suffer on the cross. Not in reality, but it just appeared that way. Again, it's understandable. It makes the cross a bit easier to digest. It turns gristly meat into more of a starchy carbohydrate. It fills the belly in a satisfying way and is far less challenging. You know, it requires no faith that, hey, if I chew on this thing for long enough, I know that it will eventually break down and get into my stomach. Now, this heresy was struck down at Nicaea in 325, but it remained in the ether for far longer than that. Did it make it to Arabia? Who knows? It certainly would not be unique among Christian heresies if that was the case. But the reason I'm talking about this particular heresy and others is this rejection of the cross as a victory for God is clearly present in Islam as well. The rejection is there, definitely. However, the degree of the rejection of it and the specifics of this rejection of it 
are typically cryptic from the Quran on the subject. Again, this is why there isn't any kind of absolute doctrine, you know, a Nicene Creed style type of thing. Now, before I go over the Islamic theories of the crucifixion, this will be a multi-episode part, so don't worry, it's not all happening in this one. Let me just give you the Quranic passage most of this is based on. This is from Surah 4. So before I read the lines, I will get to them eventually. There's a bit more preamble coming here. Some context. This is a Medinan Surah. And more than that, this was revealed probably a bit after the Battle of Uhud and possibly during the time when Muslim-Jewish relations were spinning out of control in and around Medina. I don't think they were ever worse. So when you hear these lines, one important thing to remember is this is not directed at Christians. This is directed at Jews. Now, I'm not sure if there were any Christians around at the time, which is kind of funny from a certain point of view, because here we have a heated discussion of Jesus involving two religions that are not Christianity. But in this context, the Muslim argument is being made for Jesus as a prophet of God, as a messenger of God, as a holy man clearly from God. And it seems that the counterargument, the Jewish argument, at least among this group, is that they are actually proud that they killed this person they consider to be a random preacher from Galilee. And in this context, you really see in a very real way the fundamental scandal of the cross lifting its head up again. The Muslims are making an argument for Jesus. But in arguing for Jesus, the cross is seen as a weak thing. It is a weak point rather than a strong point and not part of the fundamental argument for Jesus that Christians would make, obviously. Rather, it's something that needs to be explained away. It's a problem because in the Muslim mind at the time, as earlier in so many heretical Christian minds as well, if Jesus suffered, died, and was buried, even if he rose again on the third day, it still looks like a victory for evil. And God would not permit that. That does not make sense. The thought of God's enemies mocking his prophet in the passion and on the cross, it is simply too much to bear, too scandalous, a show of weakness from God that just scrambles the religious brain. So in the midst of this argument, if it was an argument, I can't really tell you what specifically the Jews of Medina were saying and how they said it, but from the context, you have a pretty good idea of how the Muslims were hearing it. So the Jewish argument may have been similar to the Muslim argument regarding Jesus in a way. You know, the Jews may have been saying, hey, if he was so great, if he was such a special person born of a virgin in God's favor, why did that happen? The crucifixion is a sign of God's disfavor, is it not? So then the Muslims would probably need a retort to this, an answer. 
So the cross, again, is not something to be directly stared at, but something to be dealt with. So instead of framing it as a win, as Christians do, the Muslims said that logically, it just, it didn't happen. Now, this is not based on any historical evidence that's claimed, but this is more of a logical and theological inference and assumption. It's a function of logic rather than one of observation. Because fundamentally, obviously, this makes no sense. And since God cannot make no sense, therefore, this did not happen as you Jewish people are describing it. And that's the argument the Quran makes in these two verses. It's a very humble argument, actually. There is no claim to historical fact here. There's no positive declaration of what really happened. Only a negative declaration that the Jews are incorrect. That this isn't what it appeared to be to those who were there. This is, as usual, very Quranically, Light on the details, at least from a historical perspective. So you have this, and the Muslims are left with a bunch of puzzle pieces rather than a clear picture. Therefore, as I've noted a few times in past episodes, there is no definitive Muslims believe declaration to make here. But there is what I think it would be fair to call a majority opinion, also the more traditional interpretation of this Quranic passage. Now, you may have noted, where's the Quranic passage? You haven't said it. What is this thing? I'm giving it to you now, all right? So with all that background, I want you to listen to it, keeping in mind all the things that I've said here. This passage, Surah 4, verses 157 to 158. Uh, for this particular one, I chose the Mustafa Khitab translation. And for boasting, we killed the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. But they neither killed nor crucified him. It was only made to appear so. Even those who argue for this crucifixion are in doubt. They have no knowledge whatsoever, only making assumptions. They certainly did not kill him. Rather, Allah raised him up to himself, and Allah is almighty, all-wise. So that's the Quran version there. What does that mean? Well, <laughs> This is running long, so we will get to that in the next episode. I promise. Thank you, and I will talk to you next time. Inshallah.
Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.